0: Let me invite you to turn uh, now to the book of Isaiah and the 40th chapter. We'll read Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 9. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Father, we want to be able to say to one another, here is your God. And so show yourself to us today from your word. Teach us what you are like and who you are and how we ought to praise you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I plan, uh, if the Lord is willing, to spend the next few months studying and preaching through uh, this book of Isaiah. According to chapter 1, verse 1, the book itself was written by the prophet whose name it bears, Isaiah, whose ministry was ongoing, quote, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. uh, Approximately between the years 740 and 700 B.C. Uh, Those years may not uh, make much of a difference to you, Uh, but if you think about it like this, Isaiah was prophesying much near the end of the Old Testament than he was the beginning. Uh, He was prophesying about 1,400 years after the calling of Abraham, 700 years after the Israelites' uh, exodus from Egypt, and 300 years after the reign of David the king. That's where he sits, and that's where this book sits in Old Testament history. Those 40 years of Isaiah's preaching uh, were then eventually compiled into the book that you have open on your lap this morning. In other words, what we have in the 66 chapters of this book is mostly a compilation of dozens of sermons that Isaiah collected and put down in a kind of poetic shorthand and collecting them under a single cover. The book is not a running chronological narrative of events during Isaiah's day. It is rather a gathering together of his prophetic words about those events and to those people who lived in those sad days. Isaiah lived during a time when the nation of Israel had become in many ways indistinguishable from the pagan people around them. They were no different than their lost neighbors, and Isaiah speaks to that in this book. Now, the fact that this book that we're going to be studying for a couple of months is an assorted collection of dozens of sermons rather than a running chronology uh, makes it a much more difficult mountain for the preacher to climb. In other words, not many a local pastor has the wherewithal to begin at Isaiah chapter 1 verse 1 and go verse by verse all the way through to Isaiah sixty-six twenty-four. Your pastor certainly doesn't feel himself up to that task, and yet... All scripture is inspired by God, we're told in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, including this long and winding road that is the prophecy of Isaiah. Therefore, we must study this book. We must get a picture of it as a whole, not merely a single verse here about the virgin birth or a single chapter there about Christ being crushed for our iniquities. We need to look at the whole book how can we do that? Well, it seems to me uh, that lacking the ability for me to handle this entire prophecy verse by verse, I might still be able to give you the overall message of the book by occasionally dipping into it and spending several weeks on one or other of the key themes in the book. In other words, to divide the book perhaps into several themes and look at them here and there at different times that we have. There are certain threads that run through this fantastic book that help us get a picture of the whole and make it easier for us to study it. Let me just mention five of them to you. There is the theme of woe in this book. Woe, as God pronounces his judgment, his woes upon the nations surrounding his people and particularly as he pronounces judgment on his own people and their impending deportation to Babylon because of their sins. On the other hand, Isaiah also speaks, secondly, a great deal about the new heavens and the new earth. If you were to read this book, you would find him often reminding the people of God that though their weeping may last for a night, for those who will cling to him in faith, there will be a new morning that dawns, with it a shout of joy. A third theme that you might notice in reading this book of Isaiah would be the servant theme with which the latter chapters of the book are taken up. Time and again, God speaks through Isaiah of his coming servant, Messiah, and all of the sufferings and triumph and love that will characterize the servant's ministry. A fourth theme that you would notice is that Isaiah has much to say about what we in the New Testament call the gospel. Isaiah is often preaching good news to God's people The good news of salvation from their sins. In fact, it was on this theme that we spent 10 weeks several years ago. And then last but not least, a perusal of this book would reveal that Isaiah has a great deal to say about the character and attributes of God. When we want to understand God's holiness or His sovereignty or His mercy or His foreknowledge, if we were to do a study on all the attributes of God, we would find ourselves often turning to this very book. Because some of the clearest and most profound passages that speak to us about who God is and what He is like come from the prophecy of Isaiah. So then... In lieu of studying the entire book verse by verse, any one of those themes might be taken up in smaller portions and help us understand and appreciate this complex book. Perhaps in time we'll have opportunity to enjoy each of those themes. But for the next several weeks we're going to pursue the last item on the list, the last theme that I mentioned to you from the book of Isaiah. Between now and April, Lord willing, my hope is to walk you through the book of Isaiah, noticing some of the majestic passages in which this prophet marvels at the character and the attributes of God and enables us to marvel as well as he speaks to us about what our God is like. Really, as God speaks to us through Isaiah's pen about what he is like. We're going to study the character and the attributes of God from Isaiah between now and roughly Easter. We're not going to compile an exhaustive list of all of God's attributes, nor will we even make an exhaustive search of all that Isaiah has to say about God's attributes. Rather, what we're going to do is to select what I believe are eight of the most salient passages in this 66-chapter book on the attributes of God, eight of the most crucial passages that stand out as being most vital in helping us understand what our God is really like. And to introduce those passages, to introduce these characteristics, these attributes of God, and this series of sermons, I want you to look once more at that verse which we read just a few moments ago as we began, Isaiah 40, verse 9. I think here in Isaiah 49, verse we have summed up all that I want to say and do for the next eight weeks. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. That's what I hope to do over the next two months, to lift up my voice mightily and to say to you, the people of God, week after week, here is your God. To say to you, as the King James puts it more poetically, Behold your God. Behold your God. Now, that word behold has a noble and powerful history in the pages of the Bible. If you were to turn to the most important, the most moving scenes in biblical history, you would find that that word behold is employed on many an occasion, almost like bold print to draw our attention to that which we simply must not overlook. Behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket. Behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. Behold, a virgin shall be with child. Behold, I bring you glad tidings of great joy, which shall be for all the people. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, He is coming with the clouds. When God or one of His messengers wants to make sure that we pay attention, When the words that are about to be spoken or the events that are about to take place are so important that we simply must not miss them, this word, behold, is repeatedly inserted into the pages of Scripture. It's the same word that the New American Standard translates here, but it's really better translated, behold, pay attention, concentrate. Focus. Make sure you take note of what you're about to see or of what you're about to hear. Behold is like a megaphone in the biblical author's hands, their way of shouting, attention. And here we find Isaiah employing that megaphone to draw our attention, not to an event or even an important word from the Lord, but to draw our attention to the Lord himself. Behold your god isaiah wants to draw our attention to god's character and his attributes to who he is in and of himself indeed the prophet spends the rest of this chapter isaiah 40 delineating many of those characteristics and attributes behold your god he says study focus on give your attention to be sure you take notice of god himself That's slightly different than taking notice of what God has done, isn't it? Now, we must notice what God has done. We must behold God's works in creation, in the redemption of sinners, in the providences that he orchestrates in our own personal lives. Of course, we must behold what God has done. And yes, beholding what God has done helps us to behold God himself, doesn't it? As we understand what God has done, we understand what kind of God has done it. The same way that beholding a series of paintings helps us understand a good deal about the painter. But here in Isaiah 49 and in this study, our focus will be on the painter himself. Instead of looking at his works primarily, we'll do some of that, but we're going to sit down with the painter himself and study him while he paints. Our focus in this study is going to be on the worker Rather than, first of all, on his works. Behold, not just the works of God. The Bible tells us to do that. But behold your God himself. Look directly at him, Isaiah says. Study what he is like. Meditate on the various traits that make him who he is. For instance, ponder all that it means that God is holy. Try and wrap your mind around his omnipresence. Stand back and wonder at his immutability, his unchangeableness. Marvel at and be terrified that God describes himself as a jealous God. Find rest in his sovereignty. Bask in his love. Try and plumb the depths of the meaning of his name. I am. These are the kinds of activities and thoughts Isaiah has in mind when he urges his readers that they should behold their God. It's not simply that we should serve our God. It's not simply that we should worship our God. It's not simply that we should see what our God does, but that we should sometimes just stop and think about God himself. Indeed, in this book of prophecy, Isaiah provides us with a bevy of opportunities to do that. He provides us, if you will, with a number of vantage points at which we may pause in our journey through this book and look out and behold our God. In fact, let me go ahead and give you an initial peek from the various overlooks at which we're going to stop as we travel through the book of Isaiah. Seven more of them after this morning. From Isaiah 40, verse 25, we are going to behold our incomparable God. God. To whom then will you liken me, that I will be his equal, says the Holy One. From Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, we're going to behold our sovereign God. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done. Saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. From Isaiah 6, verse 3, we will behold our holy God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. From chapter 45, verses 18 and 19, we will behold our conspicuous God. I am the Lord, and there is none else. I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in a waste place. I'm conspicuous, God says. From chapter 5, verse 4, we'll behold our diligent God. As he says to us, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done? In chapter 42, verse 8, we'll behold our jealous God. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. And from Isaiah 55, 1, we'll behold our welcoming God. Ho, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters, and you who have no money, come and eat. Come and buy wine and milk without money and without cost. These are the kinds of traits that the Lord has in mind when he commands us through the prophet, Behold your God. And I hope that you'll agree with me that Isaiah has presented us with quite a powerful collection of verses. Quite a striking gathering of God's own descriptions of himself. God's character is, like Joseph's tunic of old, many-colored. Indeed, there's so much to see in the many-sided character of God that we will only be scratching the surface in the eight weeks that are ahead of us. Just beginning to begin to behold our God. In fact, so wide and so varied are the attributes of God that their very complexity is an attribute all unto itself. Simply the fact that God has so many attributes that all come together in one God is one of his attributes. So let's spend just a few moments now allowing Isaiah to say to us, Behold, your complex God. That's the first attribute that we want to think about. God is complex. Not complicated. Not convoluted. Not confused or confusing, but God is assuredly complex. In other words, he is much more like the diamond in Aaron's priestly breastplate than he is like the smooth stones in David's slingshot. There are many different sides and colors to the character of God. You look at a diamond from one angle and the sparkle is bright white but you turn it in another direction and there may be a tint of red or green or violet. And sometimes a whole rainbow of colors flashes forth from the diamond all at once from one and the same stone. And that's the way it is with the attributes of God. Holiness and love. Omnipresence that God is everywhere at once and incarnation that He took on flesh. Grace and justice. All of these attributes shine forth from one and the same divine being. Our God is complex. And when we call him complex, we are giving him a compliment, not a critique. Sometimes when we call someone complex, we are criticizing them, but not so with God. It is a compliment that God is complex. God is like a symphony wherein dozens of different musicians and instruments and several different musical parts all come together to make one harmonious sound. Now, even to an untrained ear like mine, listening to the symphony can be done, right? Even if you can't pick out all the different pieces, you can appreciate what you hear, even though you don't fully recognize all that makes it sound like it sounds. However compared to my limited enjoyment of the symphony, a trained ear surely gets tenfold pleasure from the same collection of sounds and strains and instruments. The trained ear has learned to behold the symphony. The trained ear belongs to someone who has done with orchestral music what Isaiah helps us do with the character and attributes of God. Namely, a trained ear is able to recognize all the various moving parts to appreciate each one of them individually, and thus to appreciate better the cumulative whole as well. And that's what we must do with God. We must not be satisfied with a flat God or a simple God. We must not be satisfied to have an untrained ear or an untrained eye that can only enjoy God a little bit. We want the tenfold pleasure of being able to see all the various attributes and to recognize them individually and to see how all of God's perfections, His holiness and His love, His justice and His mercy, His omnipresence and His incarnation, and all the rest, work together to make the most complex, splendid person in the universe we want a complex God we need to see a complex God and so Isaiah says to us behold your God in all of his variegated attributes and characteristics and that's what we're on about in this series of sermons beholding, appreciating, worshipping a complex God if the illustration of a symphony is unhelpful to you Perhaps you can think of complexity along the lines of the various components of human anatomy, or the wide range of functions and programs on your computer, or the various different parts of an electrical circuit, or the many different ingredients in a cake, the delicate balances in the ecosystem, the multiple shades of color in a painting, the assorted strands of thread that are woven into a Persian rug. By God's design, it seems to me, we deal all the time with complexities. And when we understand them, we love them. It's true, I know, that when we don't understand how the assorted parts work together, complexity can become confusion and convolution, right? with computers and with all sorts of things if we don't understand. But if we understand the various components of the symphony or the laptop or the Persian rug, then complexity, far from being frustrating or intimidating, becomes beautiful and captivating and desirable to us. So it is when we behold our God. God may be frustrating if we don't understand But as we unfold the various attributes that are before us in the book of Isaiah and in the scriptures in general, things change. When we unfold the attributes, God becomes more and more complex in our eyes. But if we come to understand the complexity, if we come to understand the multifaceted character of God, he appears to us more and more fascinating and stunning and attractive and desirable as well. In fact, even in the relatively brief look that I gave you at the passage that's before us and the passages that are before us in the weeks ahead, surely you began to see already the complexity of God's character. We said that God is jealous for his glory. I will not give my glory to another. And yet he's also welcoming to people who are so often living for their own praise. Come and buy wine and milk without money and without cost. God is holy, we said. He is completely different than and morally superior to and separate from his creation. He's holy, holy, holy. And yet he has made himself conspicuous and easy for sinful human beings to find. The list could go on. We could demonstrate again and again how certain traits that we would be very hard-pressed to combine and balance in our own personalities find perfect harmony in the character of God. Behold your God, Isaiah says, in all his wonderful complexity. That is what he seems to be saying to us, Isaiah, in this collection of sermons that make up his prophecy. And that is our goal over the next few weeks at least to begin to begin to appreciate some of the many-colored attributes of our God and to see how those attributes come together in a complex harmony that the New York Philharmonic or Apple Computers or the Weavers in Persia could never hope to duplicate. And our goal is to be able, therefore, to stand more and more amazed at the complex beauty and character of our God. Behold your complex God. That's one of the great messages and themes of the book of Isaiah. In fact, let me just take a few minutes to notice how the two verses that immediately follow verse 9 seem to bring God's complexity right to the forefront. Consider Isaiah 40 and 11. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arms, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Do you see the complexity even in those two brief verses? On the one hand, God comes to his people with might. But on the other hand, he will gently lead the nursing ewes. His arm is said to rule for him in verse 10. And yet in verse 11, the same arm gathers the lambs. He is both a judge who brings recompense in verse 10 and a shepherd who tends his flock in verse 11. It's amazing, isn't it? The complexity, the contrast. But what do the contrasts here represent between the judge and the shepherd? What kind of God do they represent? A conflicted God or a marvelously complex God? Is it that God is moody and prone to flights of emotions so that sometimes He uses His shepherd's crook to gently lead and carry His lambs and at other times He slams it on the table in anger and you never know which God you're going to get. Is that what we have here? Or is it that God is at one and the same time both sovereign and righteous and holy and the judge of all the earth and that he also wields that sovereignty and holiness and righteousness in the care of his precious lambs. It's the latter, isn't it? God is not conflicted. He is complex. The shepherd who loves his lambs and carries them on his shoulders can, when necessary, ply his rod to their discipline or use it to beat back wolves that seek to steal, kill, and destroy his flock. Or to put it another way, the same crook that a shepherd may use to crack the ribs of a ravaging wolf or even to jolt the hindquarters of his unruly sheep, that same crook he will also turn upside down on occasion using the hooked end to scoop the very same sheep out of the miry pit. One staff, one shepherd, two different attributes... Depending on the need of the sheep, behold your God. Indeed, let me say that perhaps nowhere do we see the splendid complexity of God with more clarity than in the events which we spent the month of January considering, namely in the crucifixion of God's own Son. It is a complex God who sends His Son to the cross, On the one hand, the cross is the greatest display of God's justice, His wrath, and His recompense for sinners. The greatest display of those things that the world has ever seen. Never was God's fury towards sin more evident than on that day when the sky was blackened and the Son of God was forsaken and the fierce wrath of God Almighty rained down upon His head without mercy. Never! Do we see God's hatred for sin so clearly as then? Never is his justice painted with clearer lines or in more detail. Never were the words of Isaiah 40 verse 10 fulfilled more clearly. Behold, God will come with might with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Never was his recompense before him like it was at the cross. If we ever have seen God's might... If we ever have seen God's recompense, it was as he dealt with his son for our sins. But why did he do it? Why did God come with a mighty arm and with this awful recompense for sin in verse 10? So that, verse 11, he might gather his lambs and carry them in his bosom so that he might Forgive our sins and call us his children and provide a home for us on high and conform us into the image of his son. That's why all the wrath and recompense was poured out on his son because God is also gentle and merciful toward his flock. Do you see? God's justice and his kindness are not contradictory attributes, they are cooperating attributes. His wrath and His mercy, far from being incompatible, are actually incomplete without one another. And so it is with all of God's variety of attributes. His holiness, His love, His jealousy, His generosity, His omnipotence, and so on. Behold your God. He is not conflicted. But he is marvelously, gloriously, and necessarily complex. And we should be eternally amazed with and grateful toward such a God. In fact, if we had any other kind of God, our salvation would be impossible. Indeed, if God were anything but magnificently complex, he would be no God at all. But as God, he possesses in full measure and in perfect harmony all the perfections that we will try to weave together in the coming weeks and a hundredfold more of them. I hope that your heart is moved by these things and warmed and challenged and thrilled with even the few perfections of God that we've noted this morning. But then the question before we finish today is this. What do we do with what we're learning? How do we respond to this God in all of his stunning complexity? Let me conclude by giving you a threefold answer. Behold, worship, and proclaim your God. Those are the three things we ought to leave doing this morning. Beholding, worshiping, and proclaiming the manifold excellencies of our God. Think about each of those applications for a moment or two. First, I hope that you will leave today and behold your God. I know that this is what we've been saying throughout, and I'm not repeating it here simply to fill space. Rather, I repeat this simple phrase again, Behold your God, so that you will see how important it is that we simply look at God and observe Him and understand Him without always feeling that we must rush ahead and do something for Him. We'll come to the doing in a moment, to be sure. But sometimes, beholding... And appreciating and marveling are the order of the day. Sometimes it's more important to behold and to appreciate, to marvel, than it is to do. Martha, you remember, was doing. She was serving Jesus in Luke chapter 10. Not wrong to do that. But her sister Mary was simply sitting at his feet, stunned and amazed. And it was Mary on that occasion that Jesus said had chosen the better part. And so it should often be with us. We ought sometimes simply to sit before our open Bibles or at the end of the worship service or looking out on the sunset and simply be agape at what we see in God. To return to the analogy of the symphony, let me remind you that you don't go to the symphony or the bluegrass concert, if that's your speed. You don't go to the concert in order to do anything particular, do you? You may applaud at the end, and you may even leave resolved to play like they can play. But while the concert is ongoing, you simply behold. You simply marvel and wonder and enjoy. And we must learn that there are times when this and only this is what we need to do with God. There are times for us simply to sit at his feet with Mary and marvel and wonder and enjoy. And so I hope you leave today determined more than ever to simply and passionately behold your God. Secondly, though, I hope that you leave today with a great desire to worship your God, to worship him. Isaiah doesn't specifically make this application here in Isaiah 40, I know, But surely, though much of your time at the concert is spent simply beholding and admiring, there is a time for applause, right? There is a time to give vent to the appreciation that has been building in your heart for the last two hours of beholding. And surely there's a correlation in that applause to the spiritual world. Surely there is a reason for the believer to applaud and to sing and to shout, and yes, to live to the praise of the one we behold and admire. Do you sing to the Lord? I don't mean to ask if you repeat certain words along certain cadences with everyone else on Sunday mornings. I hope you do that. But what I mean when I ask you, do you sing to the Lord, is do you really sing to the Lord? Is there a melody in your heart A joy in your countenance as you live to his praise. If you learn to behold your God, if you learn to sit at his feet with Mary, if you give attention to the complex symphony of his divine attributes, surely you will want at some point to stand up and applaud what you've seen and heard. To stand up and sing to the Lord with his people and on your own. And so I hope you leave today just a little bit more inspired, not only to behold your God, but to worship Your God. And finally, I want to urge you to leave today and proclaim your God. Behold your God, worship your God, and thirdly, proclaim your God. If you look at Isaiah 40, verse 9, once again, you will see that this is exactly what Isaiah himself was calling for proclamation. Notice as you look at that verse that Isaiah seems to have been preaching in Jerusalem. Indeed, it was largely in this, the capital city, that his ministry was based. And so naturally, therefore, as he speaks this sermon that we now have in written form, it was to the people of Jerusalem that he addressed his words. He wanted the people of Jerusalem, or Zion as it's often called, to behold their God in this marvelous sermon that eventually became the whole of Isaiah chapter 40. But... As he says in verse 9, he also wanted the people of Jerusalem to whom he was speaking, not only to behold their God, but to do something else with this sermon as well. What does he ask of them? Well, he asks that they go out and speak this same word to others. Isn't that what he says? Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up. Do not fear, say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Do you see what Isaiah is asking of his hearers? You who are listening to this sermon, he says, you who are beholding this God that I have placarded before your eyes here in Isaiah chapter 40. Now, get up from this sermon and speak of this God to your brothers and sisters in the other cities of Judah. Go out from the sermon, he says, and urge other people to behold and love and enjoy and marvel at this same God that you have been beholding. Lift up your voice to the rest of God's people, he says, and say to them, Behold your God. Great is the Lord and worthy of glory. Great is the Lord and worthy of praise. Great is the Lord. Now lift up your voice. That's what he's saying to them. You go and speak to the masses. Isaiah preached He preached comfort to the downtrodden of God's people in verse 1. He preached faith to those who were doubting and straying down in verses 27 and 28. He preached times of refreshing to those who waited upon the Lord, that they would renew their strength and mount up with wings like eagles in verse 31. He preached God's incomparable greatness to them all in verses 12 through 26, but he didn't want to be the only one preaching, he says. He didn't want to be the only one holding up God's name and God's character before the people's eyes. No, he says, you yourselves must not only behold your God as I preach Him to you here in chapter 40, but you must also lift up your own voices, verse 9, and go and help each other behold Him as well. And this is not mainly a call to evangelism, I want you to notice, important as it is to share Jesus with unbelievers. The call in Isaiah 49 is to make much of God with and before other believers. Say to the cities of Judah, he says, Behold your God. The cities of Judah were to the inhabitants of Jerusalem their fellow Jews, their fellow partakers in God's kingdom and his family. And So when we modern-day members of God's family, when we modern-day dwellers of Jerusalem find ourselves together, when we have opportunity for fellowship and conversation, what Isaiah would say to us is, let us be in the habit of saying to one another, Behold your God. Talk about God with one another. In other words, Isaiah would say to us, I think, let's not allow our conversation to merely linger around the weather or the football game, or the latest news about our jobs, or our kids, or our health, and so on. Those things aren't wrong to talk about. There are occasions for us to speak of them together, of course, and certainly to pray about them together. But, oh, Isaiah says, when you gather as Christians, let your great desire to to come together and talk about God. To say to one another, behold your God. That's his concern here that God's people come together and talk about Him and spur one another on to know and admire and marvel at and behold Him. And so I simply conclude this morning by urging you, lift up your voice mightily, O people of Pleasant Ridge Baptist Church. Lift it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, say to your fellow citizens in God's kingdom, say to your fellow members of His family in this church and others, behold your God.